Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I've been doing a lot of um, book readings and visiting other sanghas, um, Howie Cohn's sangha and uh, Philip Moffat's and uh, Sylvia's at Spirit or Sylvia Borstein and uh, Jack's on Monday night, but um, and sharing about the book. But I haven't done it with our sangha, so felt right to to do that, especially with uh, Shoshana here this week. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's really, it makes it extra special having her here. And I, I want to share a little bit about, about uh, Shoshana and, and welcome her here. <coughs> we, I, I'm, I don't recall if I shared this part, but uh, if I, I have, uh, I'll, I'll do it again. Um, let's pardon the redundancy. Um, so we, we first met, I first met Shoshana in my um, second retreat in Toledo, Washington in 1976. Um, and we also uh, sat the three-month course, uh, the first three-month course at IMS a few months after uh, that. But on that first retreat, I was overwhelmed with a mountain of pots that I had in front of me because uh, I was assigned pot washing duty and I was feeling really grumpy and sorry for myself. Oh gosh, you know, this poor me. I'll never get through these, this pot washing duty. And in the middle of it, mindfully of course, just, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, not. Um, and in the middle of of this uh, this kind of tizzy I was in, uh, this angel came up and quietly whispered, "Would you like some help?" And it was love at first sight. Uh, <laughs> I was so grateful, and she had the, just this beautiful, buoyant energy, just like a little, like an uh, a, 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 a like. Somebody sent from on high to help me, <laughs> and uh, and she's been uh, helping me since, and uh, we've had a, a really amazing uh, Dharma connection, friendship, uh, shared, lived at Harwood House together with Jane and uh, Wes Nisker and a number of others for uh, a number of years, and uh, she has a real. Uh, gift for the written word. She's brilliant with the written word and has helped birth classics like um, Tara Brock's Radical Acceptance and Sharon Salzberg's book on faith. Uh, they turned out as beautifully as they did in large part because of, of her skill and also her wisdom, her Dharma wisdom of 30, almost 40 years uh, in the Dharma. So uh, it's a real pleasure to have her here. I want you to meet my friend Shoshana. Thank you, James. We should all have friends like James. <laughs> yes, uh, we, right, James and I have had, had a long history, 
so many different ways of intersecting. And uh, one of the things I've been saying to people is that as a child, I, one of my favorite activities uh, was talking about God. And I have no idea what I said. You know, I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, but when I met James and we started a friendship, we used to stay up till all hours talking about Dharma. It was just like one of the most pleasant, wonderful things. We were both very excited about it. And when we, after the first retreat that we did together, I remember getting on an elevator, right? Would you remember that? Yes, right after the three-month course. Every once in a while, we'd say, you know, are you being mindful? Right? We, just, we push the button, and you hear this little voice, are you being mindful? <laughs> it was a wonderful practice. We were very sincere about the whole process. The thing that I have really come to see during these last, it's been, it's actually been probably about seven years this book has been in process. Four years, very intently. And I really can guarantee you that James really, truly wants every one of you to be very happy. It's true. It is really. And doing a book is a very difficult thing. It's, it's challenging. Um, and in the process, I also really came to see the depth of James's commitment to the Dharma, which isn't always an easy thing to be committed to, as you know. He has really created something, as you know, those of you who took the, have taken the course, um, those who might be uh, signed up to take it. You know, we sit here. I was actually up, up here, and this thought went through my mind today. What? Why do we all sit here like this? Somebody might walk into this room, and here we all are. Right? Why do we do this? It's because we want to be happy. Some of you might want to be getting off the wheel of samsara, but if that's not going to happen in the next half hour, you might as well figure out how to be happy. <laughs> uh, and James has created a wonderful program for that. I keep saying it's a menu. It's a menu. Like just like you don't go to the restaurant and eat the menu. If you, if you take this and really, really digest these practices, it's pretty clear isn't it? You'll end up feeling uh, far more well-being in your life. Thanks. Uh, basically, the menu is the Dharma, so yeah. it, it's pretty good, uh, pretty good stuff we have back in the kitchen there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, that was very sweet. Okay. Uh, what we thought we would do is um, share a little bit about uh, the book and uh, and some of the uh, share some pieces from the book and uh, as a, a kind of uh, Dharma offering um, and I again I'm not sure if I've talked about the overview about the the, the principles of of the book uh, but uh, it's it's been a while if I have, and so I'll I'll just briefly give you a, a sense of of what I was trying to convey um, from a place actually of losing my own joy uh, for a while. Uh, the Dharma was everything to me, and it just brought me such fulfillment and happiness. And it was a pretty long honeymoon period I had, uh, but for a period of time, as can sometimes happen, I got very serious about practice. Solemn, somber, somehow thinking that it was not Buddhist to enjoy life the way that I uh, naturally would in my better moments. And not that that was what was being I misunderstood unconsciously the, the, the teachings. And uh, when I reclaimed my joy, seeing this is part of life, I wanted to know where I had gone astray. 
And so I, I look carefully at the, the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma, to see just what the Buddha did have to say about happiness. Because there's so much talk about suffering, there's suffering in life, the first noble truth, there's a cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, and there's a path leading to the end to suffering. But really, all of those are about finding where real happiness is. It's just there's more of an emphasis on the word suffering. But joy is a factor of enlightenment. It is one of the four divine abodes. And there are many um, kinds of well-being and, and joy that are spoken about in the teachings. But you can, it can kind of get lost in the focusing on suffering. It's really about developing happiness. Going for the highest happiness, the Buddha said, and all the others will follow. So when I looked at the teachings, there were three that really struck me uh, that I put together into a, a way to present um, practices that one could develop and see for themselves if, uh, if happiness would follow. The first is the Buddhist teaching on wholesome states, uh, on wise effort being both Diminishing unwholesome states like anger and fear and confusion and jealousy and all of those states that make us feel contracted and small and disconnected and are suffering. And he said to develop and increase wholesome states, states like love, kindness, compassion, generosity, gratitude, all of those that are expansive that allow us to feel good, the goodness inside and having it come through. He said this is a good thing to do, to cultivate those states and when they're here to actually maintain and increase them. That's the, the last of the four wise efforts, to maintain and increase wholesome states when they've arisen. Second principle is the fact that with those wholesome states, there's a gladness that arises. It feels good when you're being generous. And the Buddha has this, this line in one of the discourses, as you're feeling generous, as generosity moves through you, you should reflect and say, oh, I'm being generous now. And, uh, and let yourself feel how good that feels for it to move through you. Not taking ownership of it, but seeing oh, it just feels so good to be generous or to be kind or to be loving. Uh, not because you're trying to be some kind of saint or holy person, but just because it feels good. And he said the gladness that accompanies that wholesome state that lets you feel good is uh, an equipment of mind to overcome in any ill will and hostility. If you're feeling angry or you're feeling nasty or grumpy, when you are, can access that gladness, that is a, a, a very potent antidote to that. And he also said that that gladness opens the heart when gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth. He says, tune into that gladness. And as I've talked about it, that's what I call awakening joy, feeling the gladness that arises with those wholesome states that's who you really are. Your goodness wants to come out. And then the third uh, principle is another teaching where he said, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. And if you frequently think and ponder upon and allow your mind to alight on those wholesome states and the goodness inside, that becomes more naturally where your mind and your heart land. So over the course of uh, 10 months, uh, we, uh, are, we, we, we look at one wholesome state a month, uh, which is what the 10 chapters are. It's called Awakening Joy, 10 Steps That Will Put You on the Road to Real Happiness. And you cultivate the wholesome state uh, as best you can, no pressure, no guilt, you can't fail, you just kind of incline the mind that way. And whenever you do happen to feel some well-being, you notice the gladness connected with it. And more and more over time, 
it's just something that becomes more familiar to you. We're not talking about denial and pretending everything is fine. It's not just pasting a smiley smile on your face. It means being here for everything, for all the hard stuff, for all the pain, for all the, the, the places that the heart or the mind can go, but to hold that with an openness, the more you can open up to the well-being and the goodness inside, the more you can allow for all the hard stuff in life to be processed and not stick and overwhelm us. So this is noticing the 10,000 joys as well as the 10,000 sorrows and being here for it all. And as the word joy might, uh, might be a little bit of a snag, there's many different flavors. Some people, there's a, it, it expresses itself or at different times in you as a kind of delight and playfulness. And sometimes it's just a very quiet ease and peacefulness and, and connection. So there's many flavors to well-being. Really, well-being, this is what we're talking about. It's a little bit catchier, though, to say awakening joy than awakening well-being. So uh, that, that's, the, that's the title that I that I've used. So, um, let's see. The third point about the outside. Yeah, so in, I did that. So inclining your mind. Oh, so the, the in over time, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. And that's where over the 10 months uh, or over time, as you read, read the book, you're just inclining your mind that way. So... Um, now, um, Shoshana will just... Uh, will help you incline your mind. Help incline the mind. Mm. <laughs> so the idea is, as I said, when you're feeling good, to incline your mind and not, not miss it. There are a number of exercises in the book uh, in each of these steps. And one of them I think we'll just... Uh, a version of one of them we'll do right now, if you would. So if you'd like to just settle back into that place where you're just present with your body, present with your mind, present in this space and time. And notice as you take a breath in what happens with your body. And as it goes out, just release any places you might be holding on. Now, you might bring to mind someone who you feel very grateful for or grateful to. And if not a person, perhaps an event, something that has happened to you, just allow to come to mind that person or time, event, that you feel truly grateful for. Perhaps an image arises in your mind or a feeling of that person, that time. And as you hold that before you, let yourself say a heartfelt thank you. Thank you for being Thank you for being part of my life. Let the thank you be coming from your heart. And notice for a moment what happens in you as you remember this. You might notice a smile, a little smile, a rise on your face as you think of someone you love and feel grateful to. 
notice what might be happening in your body, perhaps a warmth in your chest. Perhaps a feeling of relaxation or expansion. And let your mind focus on one of those experiences, perhaps that little smile on your face, and let it deepen and expand. You can actually amplify that feeling by paying attention to it, by just being present. Gratitude is a wholesome state. Notice how your mind feels with this. And then just gently holding that feeling, you can come back to the room, gently open your eyes when you're ready. As James mentioned, whenever these wholesome states arise, we can pause for a moment and take them in. Notice what they are, what they are happening in our bodies. The Buddha was a brilliant mind researcher 2,500 years ago, and neuroscience is supporting what he has discovered, corroborating these aspects of how the brain-mind, the mind-body, system functions. We are constantly creating synaptic connections in our brain based on the state that we're in. And when you pause in the midst of a wholesome state, and notice in your body and in your mind how you're feeling, you're actually allowing those synaptic connections to take place. And when you're feeling those positive states, you're not amplifying and increasing the negative states. There's always a choice going on. It's just it's part of the wisdom of the Dharma to discriminate and make those choices. So we uh, would like to share some passages from the book, some stories. I was trying to um, recall, I, I think one night a, a few weeks ago I had read a passage or two, uh, and I forget. So tell me, uh, did I, I read the passage uh, about Sylvia here? Does it not ring a bell? What's that? No. Good. Okay. No, this is, um, this is a different one. This is, uh, this is from the chapter on uh, mindfulness, which is uh, the second theme after there's the inclining towards well-being and the intention to place happiness at the center of your, your life, uh, the, the next key tool, which is used throughout the rest of the course, is mindfulness, which the Buddha said is the most powerful way to overcome, uh, to end pain and uh, anxiety, overcome sorrow and lamentation, and realize the highest happiness, developing mindfulness. And it does so in many ways. It weakens the unwholesome states, strengthens the wholesome states, and when you uh, are in the middle of a wholesome state, as you pay attention to it, as Shoshana said, you can amplify it. It also interrupts the confusion and the, um, the ways that the mind gets lost. And wanted to share with you this uh, anecdote um, that beautifully illustrates it. No, it's okay. um, we have little control over what thoughts arise in any particular moment. If we did, 
we would probably have only thoughts of love and goodwill towards all of humanity, but a few others seem to slip through. We have profound thoughts, bizarre thoughts, and ugly thoughts. Seeing some of what goes on in our mind, the fears, the pettiness, the judgments, can be humbling. I once heard a Tibetan Buddhist teacher playfully refer to looking at what's going on in our minds as one insult after another. <laughs> or, as a common saying goes, self-knowledge is usually bad news. <laughs> but it's actually very good news. While what arises in our mind is somewhat random and out of our control, we do have control over which thoughts we choose to dwell on. By training ourselves to pay attention to what is happening in our mind and body in any situation, we make it more likely that we will empower those thoughts that support our well-being. At one Awakening Joy class, meditation teacher Sylvia Borstein told a story about how becoming aware of what she was thinking helped reframe an experience. One evening when she was staying in New York City, she had arranged to meet a friend for a theater performance and decided to take a bus to get there. As the bus crept along through the heavy traffic, Sylvia started worrying. I'm going to be late. I'll miss the curtain. My friend will worry about what happened to me. I shouldn't have taken the bus. The subway would have been so much faster. Figuring she could walk faster than the bus was going, Sylvia got off. And, of course, as I'm walking, she says, the bus passes me by. And now I'm thinking I should have taken a cab. <laughs> Sylvia's been meditating for years, but she has also, by her own admission, been fretting for years. So it was an easy reaction to fall into. Con continuing her story, she describes running down Broadway in high heels with a cold wind whipping around her. And then... All of a sudden, I have the thought, what am I doing? I'm grumbling. That's a moment of mindfulness. Up until then, I was caught up in a habit-driven narrative, an editorial comment about what was happening. The moment at which the mind says, Sylvia, you're grumbling. The lens switches, and suddenly the truth of that moment is, I'm a 71-year-old woman running down Broadway in the middle of winter in high heels, <laughs> that is far out. <laughs> that is an extremely fortunate thing to be able to do. <laughs> it changed everything. I felt proud and I actually hoped a lot of people saw me. <laughs> when we're mindful, we can let go of thoughts that undermine our well-being and thereby frame our experience in a way that invites more ease. As Sylvia puts it, a moment of mindfulness is always a moment of freedom. We can have the courage to make choices that result in positive difference for ourselves and others. So the book is filled with those kinds of stories that kind of uh, can teach uh, at the same time as uh, be fun uh, and some that are a bit more gravitas, uh, all kinds. Uh, it was, that was one of the, the joys that so many stories from friends and people who did the, the course over, over the last year uh, fill the book. And that's what makes it come alive. So of all of these states, there's, there's ten wholesome states and most of them are cultivating, cultivating a strong intention, cultivating mindfulness, gratitude, working, uh, being able to work with really hard stuff, developing integrity, and being able to uh, develop a mind that can let go, learning to love ourselves, learning to connect and love others, expressing compassion. Those are the first nine. The last chapter, which we'll focus on um, for the, the, the rest of the evening. The 10th chapter is the one that's not about cultivating, trying to develop something, but rather to simply stop doing and allow the natural being that is our true nature to shine through. So this 
joy of being is available to us at any time. And this is uh, what we want to um, focus on, and it is this is the perfect audience to do it because here we all practicing the Dharma and seeing how in the, the meditation practice, instead of trying to get a good meditation, if you simply, as I've mentioned many, many times, let the mind relax, be interested, and bring a kind awareness to the moment, then everything starts to align and um, your true nature shines through. So. so I'm going to read one little passage from the book, and then James is going to read a story of his. Most of you, in some way or another, know the experience of being. You may recall moments as a child when you sank into a deliciously relaxed state of ease and happiness. You may find yourself accessing this state in a yoga class or during moments of quiet reflection or while out running. It can happen when you're dancing, playing an instrument, or looking at microorganisms in a biology lab. There are different flavors of being and different ways of accessing them. Being in the zone is an experience common among athletes or performers when they are so engaged with the game, the music, or the drama that they forget themselves. Time slows down. They often find themselves executing brilliant moves. Carlene Sugarman, a sports psychology consultant, lists a number of qualities that characterize the zone. Relaxed, confident, focused, effortless, automatic, the thinking mind is not in the way, and deeply enjoyable. These qualities also define the state of being. However, there is another quality Sugarman includes to describe the zone for performers and those engaged in a certain task, being in control. This is different from the state of being um, that's being talked about here. The only task here is to let go of effort and settle into a state of relaxed, presence. Course participants, uh, many of you may have responded on the survey that those who take the Awakening Joy course can respond to. Some of them wrote in to say what the experience of being felt like to them. It, it Often it's just a pointing to that state because it's hard to put words there, but these are some of the things that people said. A calmness falls over me. I quiet and feel my physical body loosen. I feel open and ready, no thought. I feel a fullness in my chest and a feeling in my throat as if I'm about to sing or cry out in joy, and sometimes there are tears of joy. My mind becomes more available to a deeper sense of order. My body posture comes spontaneously more into alignment. I feel whole and at ease unjudged, unjudging, loving, and able to love myself as I am and circumstances as they are. So, uh, I, um, I shared in the chapter uh, an experience uh, that I had of um, opening to a, a very powerful state of being uh, when I was uh, in India with a wonderful teacher who I've, I've mentioned here from time to time. Um, and I'll read the, the passage. <coughs> and then uh, we can do a, a short exercise. On one of my trips to India, I traveled to Lucknow to spend some time with a remarkable teacher, H.W.L. Punja, called Punjaji or Papaji by his students. Earlier in life, he'd been in the British Army and he and his wife had raised a family. By the time I had met him, he was 80 years old, yet one of the most vital human beings I'd ever encountered. His electric smile alone made me feel more alive. 
As a student of Ramana Maharshi, a great Indian sage who taught the philosophy of non-dualism, Punjaji was committed to getting his students beyond simply developing a meditation practice. He wanted them to have the direct realization that their true nature is much vaster than the limited idea they had of themselves. The route to his goal was simply relaxing the mind and letting go deeply into their beingness. By that time, I'd been a teacher of mindfulness meditation for a dozen years. In my experience, training the mind took a lot of effort, which seemed necessary in order to reap the many benefits I'd seen in myself and countless others. And here he was telling me to stop all effort and let go of any doing as the method to free the mind. I was intrigued by Punjaji's approach, but skeptical. Yet little by little, I found myself putting aside my thoughts and questions and simply melting into the incredibly delicious and powerful energy of Punjaji's presence and love. At one point, he asked me a question. And as I searched inside for the answer, I went deeper and deeper as if being pulled into a vortex. I'm not sure exactly what happened next, but it seemed that my mind short-circuited and stopped. When I came back, it was like I'd taken a trip into eternity. I found myself looking at Punjaji with deep love and appreciation. As our eyes met, I sensed a strong energy flowing between us along with the feeling that both of us were connected to one big ocean of being, the same ocean of being I s that I sensed as the source of all life, whether it's called love, awareness, God, self, or the divine. I knew I was always held by it, that I could trust it, and that the way to knowing it was through simply relaxing into being. Now, I'd like to, I don't know if I will, if you'll have that kind of transmission now, so <laughs> let go of any <laughs> expectations. <laughs> but just for, um, for a few moments, uh, close your eyes. Put anything down. Feel your body sitting here. might take a, a few deeper breaths, feel the air and the energy, fill your body, and as you breathe out, let go. With each exhalation, let go a little bit more. And invite Deep relaxation, whatever is available to you. Now for a moment, become aware of life moving through you. Simply know that life is happening through this form without you needing to do anything. Relax deeply into that. Let go of any trying to make anything happen, any kind of effort, and simply know that you're alive. And include the fact that there is the capacity to know 
that awareness just moves through you and knows effortlessly. into the mystery of being alive. Very gently, you let yourself come back when you like. I don't know if that makes sense or did that, did you get just a, a glimpse of, of that? It's not anything you have to do special. It's all of a sudden stopping being everything. And we know this from time to time. We experience this deep relaxation of simply allowing life to move through us. It's here for us anytime we remember. And as we do, as we more and more let go of trying to make anything happen or trying to figure things out, we can hear more and more the truth in this moment. It wants to, to emerge and shine through us. So that can take us to the next slide. Well, James, everything stopped. I don't know where I was for the longest time. Now I feel totally one with you and with everybody in the room. Um, would you, um, do, uh, we have another wonderful story, um, two more out of here, um, but would anybody, is anyone burning to say something, uh, ask a question, make a comment? Well, you don't have to be burning to do that, you could just, <laughs> maybe someone gently has a question or a comment. Well, would you like to hear another story then? This one is like a real story story. Um, the Buddha was very practical, as you know. I mean, really, these teachings were, um, were to be practically applied in life. And so the chapter also incorporates that, because to enter that state of being is wonderful. But we can't be in it all the time. We live in a relative reality. And it's, wow, so what, how do we carry that into our lives um, in an ongoing way? So here is the story connected with that. Uh, the state of being is not only delightful and renewing, here it is, it has a very practical benefit. Deeper than conflicting thoughts, it is the source of wisdom. When we find ourselves confused or pulled apart by indecision, Tapping into what some call our peaceful center can align us with what will bring our life into harmony. We're all familiar with what happens when we don't listen or can't hear because the chaotic thoughts in our mind are taking the driver's seat. We're likely to plunge over a cliff. That's what happened to Allison when, in confusion, she gave up the love of her life. Allison was in her 20s when she met David. She had been leading a pretty wild life. Many boyfriends, lots of partying. I was out of control, she said. In the hope of finding some balance, she made an appointment with an acupuncturist, David. Right from the start, there was a special chemistry between them. When the strong attraction became apparent to both of them, David stopped seeing her professionally, and they began a loving relationship. She says, I had been living a lie with many of my friends until then. David said to me, you have to tell the truth. And somehow that stuck. Allison did start telling the truth to everyone but herself. The voice of fear told her that what she and David shared couldn't possibly last. After a few months, she broke off the relationship. 
although something in her was begging to stay with him. Doubt and fear disguised as the lure of fun and adventure won out. She says, I just wasn't mature enough to listen to what I really needed. He seemed like a saint, and I wanted excitement. David was devastated, and his grief led him further into the spiritual practice he had been doing for a couple of years with a Kriya Yoga teacher from India. He soon found himself managing his guru's ashram in the United States. A few years later, he became a monk himself and took a vow of celibacy. David never forgot Allison, and he would often explain when students asked how he became a Swami that a woman in Berkeley had unwittingly pushed him into the arms of the divine <laughs> by breaking his heart at the perfect time. Meanwhile, Allison floundered. For the next 17 years, she was led down dead-end dead alleys by those confusing voices inside, saying this way to happiness, no, that way to happiness. The unexpected catalyst that turned her life around was a class in a physiology class at a community college. Wow, we are just amazing beings, Allison remembers thinking. I was learning there are over a trillion cells in the human body, and each little cell's only job is to work for my well-being. I began to wonder how I could do anything to harm this body that is nothing less than a miracle. That was the beginning. She stopped drinking, started letting go of unhealthy relationships, ended up at a meditation retreat at Spirit Rock. It was challenging to break those habits that were driving her. But David had helped awaken something in her those many years before by seeing what was true and real in her. She says, I started reading a lot, spending time by myself. I had wanted inner peace, but I never thought it was possible for me before. I just hadn't known how to get there. So things were unfolding, right, with the meditation retreats, the new connection she was making, and then she slipped began to feel very attracted to getting into a relationship. That really wasn't the right thing. She asked several friends what she should do, and only one of them finally said, don't do it. It's not you. You're not that person anymore. She says, there was this huge thank you that arose inside me, and a tremendous sense of relief when I heard the truth. It rang out like a siren inside my soul and woke me up. We know the ring of truth when we hear it. Allison heard another clear message as well. Contact David. This time, when she searched for him on the internet, she found him. He was called the storytelling monk. She mustered up her courage and sent the Swami an email. Within minutes, he replied, he, would, he wrote that he had just been telling one of his students about her the week before and how she had led him into becoming a monk. And he said he'd been sending her blessings and prayers for the last 20 years. Over the course of the next two months, they stayed in daily touch. He invited her to join him in India for a meditation program. They went to visit various um, holy places in India with all of his students. This time, when Allison met David, she was able to hear what she had known to be true all along. He was the perfect partner for her. With the blessings of his fellow swamis, this is the great part. <laughs> uh, with the blessings of his fellow swamis in the order, David has made the decision to forego being a monk, marry Allison, and continue doing his spiritual work as a layperson. He has orphanages all over India and South America, does a number of other really wonderful things, and he is continuing in that way. Um, as Allison looks back on her life and the lessons she's learned, one of the most important among them is knowing how to listen carefully to her deepest self and act on that. This is all um, leading up to the capacity to listen to the truth inside, which is 
so hard when the mind is confused, contracted, disturbed. When we quiet down enough, we can hear the truth. And so I'd like to just close with a, uh, a, um, um, a similar story and then having a, a personal story about how I started to learn to, um, to trust that uh, I didn't have to figure things out. And then we can do one last short exercise. Mm. At a major turning point in my life, mm, I consulted a psychic, and the message I received still remains a guide. Reverend Miller looked a lot like Colonel Sanders, but instead of dispensing Kentucky Fried, he served up his own brand of wise guidance. Overwhelmed by indecision and a little desperate for some good advice, I made an appointment. At $5 a reading, what was there to lose? I made my way past the clutter of books in his living room and sat down before him to lay out my problem. There were several directions I could go in my life and I didn't know which one to, cho to choose. This is staying as a school teacher in New York or going up to the meditation center in, uh, in Massachusetts and working there, moving out to California or taking my Asian journey finally. Every one of them seemed good, I told, I told him, but what if I blew it by choosing the wrong way? Reverend Miller listened intently as I poured out my confusion, then closed his eyes and sat there for what felt like an eternity. I imagined he was consulting with the spirit guides he often spoke about. Finally, he opened his eyes and looked straight at me. Well, I'm not going to tell you what to do, he pronounced. My disappointment must have been obvious as I sighed. Just as I began to wonder if this was worth the five dollars after all, <laughs> he spoke again. But I will tell you one thing. Yes, I replied eagerly. Reverend Miller looked at me with great kindness and a clarity that came from years of being a keen student of life. It doesn't matter, he said. <laughs> what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about, <laughs> I shot back, incredulous and somewhat annoyed. I remember that moment. At that, the reverend proceeded to give me my money's worth. Fear blocks any movement on your journey, he began. But once you get past that and take the first step, life opens up and shows you what to do next. He went on to say that we might find a choice clearly leads us to the goal we wanted. Or we may discover after a while that another option is better. But either way, we learn valuable lessons. Or we might start out thinking we know where a certain choice is leading us, and in the process, other possibilities and opportunities we never could have imagined turn up. Any way you choose, it doesn't matter, he said. If you listen carefully and you're patient, life will lead you where you need to go as you continue on your journey. It was the best $5 I ever spent. <laughs> and over time, I saw that Reverend Miller was right. When I listen to fear, things only get more confusing. But if I let go of the fear and just move forward, the way becomes clear. So the point here is that being leads us to trust life. That's all I want to say. <laughs> so just, uh, just for a moment, uh, I invite you one last brief um, exercise. Just close your eyes and think of some good decision you made in your life. Maybe deciding to choose a direction that you somehow weren't sure but you knew inside it felt like the right thing. Or to stay or to leave a particular situation where instead of wondering, am I going to blow it, you just got in touch with the rightness that said, this is the way to go.
if you can recall some crossroads where you made a good choice. See if you can get back to that moment or sense that moment when you just knew How did you know? What did it feel like? How did it feel in your body? Was it contracted or was it spacious? A sense of alignment, connection. How did you know? How did it feel in your mind? When something inside of you said, yes, this is the way. Maybe you couldn't even explain it to somebody else, but you just knew. This is hearing the wisdom inside. This is what taking refuge in the Buddha nature inside is. We have everything we need. All we need to do is quiet down enough to be able to hear it. It's relaxing in our natural being and the truth and the goodness and the rightness shines through and can be heard. And so while you're in this quiet space, we'll close with a loving kindness for the evening because it's just about time to go. And start by just feeling all the benevolence and the goodness in this room and breathe it right into your heart. Let it pervade your body. And as you breathe out, surround yourself with that kindness and that goodness and share it with, with others. Let it radiate out. And then wish yourself well. It's important to activate that place that really wants to be happy by being kind to ourselves. May I open up to all the goodness inside and share my love well. May I open up to all the blessings and the happiness available to me and share it with others. May I awaken to my true nature beyond the confusions and the doubts to realize who I really am, not separate from the mystery and the fabric of life. And then to share that with everyone here and out to all beings everywhere, as I want to be happy and may all beings find happiness. As I want peace, may all have peace in their lives. As I want kindness, may all be touched by the power of loving kindness. And may all awaken to their true nature. And finally, may our coming here together be of benefit to ourselves, to everyone in our lives, and to all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy.
So nice to share the evening with you. Nice to share the evening with you. She's pretty neat, isn't she? It's my buddy. <laughs> so share your goodness, share your joy, share your being with everyone. Have a great week. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Shoshana. Thank you, James. <laughs>